We're here today with Joplin from Joplin Lawyers and um, Dorothy and Steve from Kansas in the USA. And we have just a great program in line for you today, talking about domestic violence and programs in relation to um, perpetrators and how we can look at changes in that space. Um, so Joplin, um, you've brought Dorothy and Steve over from Kansas. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Yes, so I was fortunate enough to meet Dorothy and Steve in 2016 when I was a Westpac Social Change um, Fellow and I went over to the States to understand perpetrator programs and their efficiencies, uh, what worked and what did not work. Uh, so I visited many states, but I kept coming back to Dorothy and Steve because their program really hits the nerve of uh, why do perpetrators um, perpetrate violence. It looks at trauma-informed therapy and engaging uh, perpetrators in the conversation around family violence, which is really an essential element which we really miss the mark on here in Australia. So um, it's just such a great pleasure for Steve and Dorothy to be here. They've been up in Cairns and Brisbane and they are having a great time, aren't you guys? It's been amazing for sure. Uh, a life time experience full of memories and meeting remarkable people and you know we've been talking about making this trip happen for years and yeah. now we know what we're missing we won't have to talk so much next time and that's so we'll right be happy to come back you might be frequent flyers here so. that might be so and you won't go the long way you'll go with delta straight <laughs> that's, through that's this right. next now time now we know the secret that's they, right. they're doing the scenic tour they've flown from kansas to houston to Japan. tokyo and then to but anyway, we're on the straight and narrow for the next trip. And I've heard from Joplin that you have an awful lot to offer us in Australia about um, giving us some insights of how we can deal with this really important topic, particularly in the family law space and the children's law space where we come across um, family violence quite frequently and um, the courts and um, the agencies and families themselves are having to deal with um, the trauma that family violence creates and... Um, I hear you have some exciting programs that you can share that maybe we could implement here or that could work for our families in order to try and improve um, their arrangements. So perhaps you could just talk about some of the work that you do. Dorothy, I think it makes sense that we start with not all those who use violence in families are the same. And for years in the States, and I imagine beyond, there's been painting those who use cruelty in families with kind of the same broad brush, that it's all driven by the same motive. And Dorothy's work has been amazing in helping us to understand that there's different motives and understanding those different motives is vital to intervening, either safety planning or with those who are using the behavior. And so Dorothy, I would encourage you to share a bit well, I think that with your work with children and addressing um, the challenges that come up in families, Nisha, you probably have seen cases where the dynamics were just different than in other cases. And that is what I was seeing in domestic violence. I was the director of a domestic violence shelter mid-80s through the mid-90s for a little over a decade. And in that time, I saw some changes um, 
that concerned me. One of the things that happened as time went by was that there was more and more emphasis on um, just having them all seen as the same. Well, when the seventh victim from the same offender came into our program in a matter of five years, I realized that I needed to be doing more than just working with the victim and the children, although that's critical to protect them. But that I, if we're really going to stop the violence, we have to understand those who are causing the harm. And so even though that was the furthest thing from my mind of what I wanted to be um, focused on initially when I got my social work degree, I realized that if I was going to be effective in my work with domestic violence, I was going to have to start learning about what made them tick. So I started talking with the victims and saw different patterns developing. Um, And in understanding those different patterns, I got a better feel for what needed to happen with this particular victim in this particular circumstance in order to keep them safe. Some are going to be in more danger while they're in the relationship. Some are going to be in more danger when they attempt to leave, uh, dependent on the the motive of, of their offender. And what were some of the patterns that you were noticing in the work that you were doing? Well, certainly there is the broad brush of entitlement that was being painted. And certainly there's a lot of entitlement that occurs when someone decides that they have the right to be violent with another person. So when it comes to recidivism, entitlement is a big deal. But what I also realized from talking with victims is that Some of them did not see that their offender believed that he was better than them, but rather that he was inferior to them. And he was clinging on for dear life for that relationship. And with that, there is actually an increase in lethality when and if she decides it's too dangerous, I've got to get out of here. So the danger might be just as they're walking out the door. But even if the danger is not then, it's when the offender believes it's over for good. Consequently, if that type of situation is going on and the victim tries to get a protection order, what we see happening is that that can actually elevate the level of violence that the the victim is in, and actually the the risk for familicide as well goes up in those kinds of circumstances. Dobash and Dobash in their 2015 book talked about the flipping of the switch with those that are lethal, where they believe they've got to keep her, got to get her to stay. But then once they believe it's over for good and that really sinks in, then it's, okay, I'm going down 
but I'm not going down alone. And that's where the homicide suicides happen. That's where a lot of the homicides happen. And unfortunately, in some cases, familicides as well. And we know that there is a high um, percentage of women in particular that um, are murdered as a result of family violence. And so for you in the work that you did, did, did you then take a look at there was something that you needed to do in terms to try and change offending behaviour? And is that why you started to look at programs in terms of how you could promote change? Yes, and of course, um, what I found was that I was strongly impacted by one particular tragedy. And I know many judges, attorneys, advocates, people working in domestic violence find that to be the case where the victim did everything they could, did everything right. The system did everything that they could to protect. And in spite of all of that, the victim ends up being tracked down and killed. And there was such a case um, that we experienced where Nancy Covey came into our shelter and with her, she brought two young children. And I believe that Nancy Covey must have been a cheerleader in a previous life because whenever she came in, everybody in the shelter, their moods elevated. She made everybody feel great. She came in quite often. And then there was the time when, and when she came in, she often would talk about well, Dorothy, I've got to go back. If I don't go back now, he's going to kill me and I can't do that to the kids. And she would go back. And then we went for about a six-month time frame where Nancy did not come into our shelter. And several staff meetings, different staff said, whatever happened to Nancy? She hasn't been in for quite a while. Well, one day I get a call and... Nancy always craved um, ice cream, especially banana splits. And she, uh, she was on the other end of the line. I had told her at one time, you know, Nance, if we can ever get you away from Wes safely and for good, then we're going to have to celebrate with a banana split. So she laughed and so I was working on a grant and I get this call from Nance and she said, Dorothy, I'm ready for that banana split. I'm not going to go back this time. So she came in and talked with me and I said, well, Nance, how is it different this time? You've always said, if you don't go back, he's going to kill you. What's different this time? She said, well, I, I don't know. I don't know that anything's really different, Dorothy but I've been having nightmares of me attacking him after he attacks me and me killing him. And I can't do that to the kids either. So I know I'm not going to go back. And I have found somebody else who treats me very well. So Wes and I, our divorce is final next week. So we did some safety planning, but she said, you know, 
I'm just at peace with it, Dorothy. I'm not going to run. She had an older child whose wife was pregnant at the time. She said, I want to be around for my grandchild. So I'm going to keep going to work. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And Wes is just going to have to decide. I think it was a Wednesday when she came in and saw me. And on Friday, Wes Covey walked into the butternut bread store where Nancy was working, ordered everybody out, gunned her down, killed himself. And the police were at my doorstep. They knew, I knew those kids very well by then. So we went over to the school and I shared the news with the kids. And I think that case was pivotal for me. And when I thought about what more could happen, what could the system do differently? I realized no matter what we did with Nancy, Wes worked for the railroad. He had a good job. He could easily track her down. So the only thing that would change in the long run, the outcome, is if we would have had a program that could impact Wes so that he could understand himself differently and not go to that extreme. It's those cases that end up lethal where we know that there's more than just entitlement. Entitlement cases, there's a lot of recidivism. But when you're willing to kill yourself, there's more going on. Wow, Dorothy, that's really tough to be able to you know, share that experience, but to be able to work with a woman that was strong within herself to have that resilience and to be able to want to leave that relationship, to be able to move to that and then to lose her when you've had such a strong relationship and then to say enough is enough and I'm going to now develop a program to work with someone that's really harmed, you know, a whole family in, in the way that he did, you know, that shows incredible strength for you as a worker because to, you know, do a complete um, flip on terms of the work that you do, I mean, that shows a lot of resilience to you too. So I commend you for that because I think um, when we work in our area with children and with families and with people who um, are victims or survivors of abuse, both with children and um, with women, um, or all men who have suffered really bad violence, it's really difficult then to move into the space of having to work with people who offend. And so to have to then move and develop those programs, that shows a lot of strength. So tell us a little bit about that, about that process that you went through in order to develop those programs and what you've noticed in what you, the work that you're doing. Well, in developing the program, I wrote a grant and got a, and was awarded a grant to do a model project in a rural area. And that afforded us the, with the funding to start the program. Um, and it was interesting because at the time I was the president of the State Coalition of Domestic Violence Programs, the shelter programs. And um, when I started doing that work, 
many of my friends who were long-term, long-time advocates talked about, Dorothy, you're going to the dark side. Yeah, what are you doing, <laughs> yeah. Dorothy? I could just imagine it. Yeah. And, and question yeah. your um, integrity towards victims and, and children that have right. experienced it. Right. But, Dorothy, with Wes, did you ever delve, uh, dive into um, what had happened in his past? Did, was he a victim of family violence himself through his childhood or was he just one of these perpetrators who has no history and just simply perpetrates violence? Those with no history are really few and far between Joplin. He, um, I'm glad you asked that question. About two years ago, their Wes and Nancy's daughter looked me up. We have moved from one end of the state to the other. And I was so surprised when I got this call. At the time, I was at the office of the attorney general as the victim services director. So I guess if she figured that out, then it wasn't hard to reach me. But it had been so long uh, that I was really surprised. But um, I think one of the things that was really striking to me was when we met, she was able to recite back to me verbatim every word I said when I shared with her the news, which, of course, was a very traumatic event. But she also gifted me with more knowledge about Wes's childhood. And I knew some of it beforehand from Nance. But what, what I pieced together from what Nancy told me and what their daughter told me is that Wes was the sixth child in a family of 13 children. Wes, in his cowboy boots, was lucky to stand five foot seven. Wes's father stood six foot seven, and his older brothers were all like six four, six five. When Wes was born, his mother died from complications. And his father, his brothers, blamed him. Then his father married someone that he had brought in to care for the children. And then she had seven children of her own with his father. So Wes... No, there were... Six and then right. seven. Seven, right. I was going to say, goodness. So. <laughs> 13. <laughs> Just 13. <laughs> Only 13, that's fine. Not 20. <laughs> so uh, stepmom saw him as a burden, understandably, if she had seven other children. Yeah. So Wes was blamed by virtually everyone. Mm-hmm. And so that was his childhood. He received a lot of abuse from his father, from his older brothers, 
and did not see himself as having any emotional supports. So you can imagine when Nance walked into his life, how wonderful that must have felt. Yes, because Nance was amazing at making everyone feel wonderful. I, I cannot imagine how wonderful that must have felt for him to have her. But the, the interesting thing about those who are survival-based, and Wes clearly was, is that they, they feel like they're not really good enough for their partner. And so they start questioning everything. Sooner or later, she's going to understand that I'm not good enough. She's going to see what everybody else has seen in me. And once she sees that, she's gone. And I can't survive that. I've got to keep holding her. And that was the story of their life. And as Lenora Walker talked about years ago in the 70s, that if a relationship has that cycle going on in it, that there's a tendency for there to be an increase in frequency and severity over time. And sooner or later, the victim gets to that point of deciding, I, somebody's going to die here. I have to get out. But interestingly, Nancy could come in and out of shelter she knew when Wes was getting to that point of, oh my gosh, is this for good? And she'd say, this has been a great break, but I've got to go back. And she'd always take the children with her, Dorothy? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. The children were always first and foremost in her considerations. And when you spoke to her daughter, had she had any relationships with violence in it or did you get that in depth with her? You know, it seemed to me that their daughter was doing amazingly well. I know that um, some of Nancy's family was very influential in her life, uh, both prior to Nancy Nancy's death, and certainly after Nancy's death. So we spent some time talking, and actually she was very interested in my work, and I've kind of lost touch of her in the last couple of years. We've been pretty busy, but um, I was so pleased at how well she was doing. No, that's wonderful. Did she give you any insight into what she thought when she was a child as to the relationship between her parents and the impact it was having on her? Oh, we spoke somewhat of that. She was very connected with her mother. She talked about, and I think kids in survival-based families, unlike entitlement, but in survival-based, they end up feeling this real responsibility to make sure that nothing upsets the offender. 
because life is great when when he's great when he's great it is only when something happens that sets him off that things spiral out of control so she she did talk about some of that walking on eggshells but um that was something Nancy talked a lot about. So they become parentified to the offender. They do. Yeah. They do. And oftentimes in those relationships, when the split happens, at least one of the kids is like, Mom, what are you doing? Because they grew up in a household where the golden rule is don't do anything to upset the offending parent. And as long as nobody does anything to upset the offending parent, life is good. So when mom is, what, 30 minutes home from the grocery store, 30 minutes late and getting home from the grocery store, and the offending parent is getting a lot of angst, what do the kids see? Oh, well, if mommy would have gotten home when she said she would, Daddy wouldn't have gotten real upset. So when the split happens, it is not uncommon for one of the children to say, well, if you're abandoning, then I'm going to stay here. I'm going to take on taking care of dad. And the other thing that I find is that normally with one child that they don't have a great relationship with is the child that they take away, particularly if they have a strong relationship with their mother, that's the child that stays with the offended. Do you see that as a pattern? Yes. And I think that has to do with that child identifying with the mother role. They've been connected with the mother and they identify with the mother role and they might have the most fury with the mother for abandoning that role. Thank you for joining us on this first part of a four-part special series podcast. Join us next time to listen to part two on Up to Date with NLS Law.